In this last phase, I want to experiment a bit because you now are the hard core who've shown that you're, you're, you're made of stern stuff and have made it through to this last bit. So I want to sort of involve people a little bit more if you're happy to, to, to do that. Well, in this last phase, the idea was we would um, invite people to give sort of 10 minutes, um, what do we call them? We call them vignettes. Vignettes. So the idea was uh, drawing on people's own uh, experience with their own research to give sort of some sort of a vignette of some scene or su- some experience of their own research that for them raises questions about um, this, que- this, this notion of institutions. In, uh, institutions, in some ways that illustrates institutions and, and sort of shock, can, can give us a, a, a sort of way of moving back and forth from the concept to some concrete examples. I mean, we've already had uh, several concrete examples discussed, but that, 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 that was the idea, that we would have three vignettes. But what I want to do is also involve you as the audience members. With each of the vignettes, I want two of you to sort of act as reflectors on what they present in that vignette. In other words, you've been thinking for the last few hours about executions. You've got your own experiences with executions. I want you to listen to what they're saying and just say, well, okay, here's what I, here's what I understand and what I think about what's been said in relation to my understanding of this execution concept. Okay, just for two minutes, three minutes, two minutes is, is, is sufficient. Um, now, just to give you a sense of who's going to be speaking, I won't tell you about the, the content because I think that will spoil it. <laughs> um, first, um, Hilda Stevenson and Nick Mahoney will, will be giving their vignette. Um, so I want two volunteers from the audience, please, to be the reflector, the reflectors for that. Who's, who's feeling bold? Good. There's one, two. Great. Then, um, uh, Steve Brown, unfortunately, was, was unable to make it today, but we're, we're, we're blessed because um, we're, we're, we've got Lewis Gooding and Ian Tucker, who are going to, going to, 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 to take over his role and, and discuss on the basis of their research, uh, uh, their, their institutional vignette. Who would like to reflect on it? Darren? Yeah, Excellent. And finally, <laughs> Megan Clinch will do the last vignette, and we, we, we need one or two more reflectors. I'm not going to really leave you into it, but I'll try. That will be Miguel and Francis. <laughs> <laughs> so we've all got your roles. <laughs> So, okay. <laughs> Do I need to Okay, um, so um, I'm going to talk briefly about the research that Nick and I are currently doing, um, which focuses on contemporary forms of participation and public engagement, um, which in many ways speaks to these debates that we're engaging in today about institutions and, and the constitution of publics. Um, Nick is going to talk more specifically about the project itself and, and how we're doing it. Um, but just to give a very brief overview, um, the project itself is called uh, Participation Now, 
um, and its main kind of component, if you like, is a website um, that's hosted by the Open University's Open Learn platform, um, which features um, a collection of over 100 examples of participatory public engagement initiatives. Um, and these are just sort of the logos of some of them. Um, this is kind of what it looks like on the site, on the main page. Um, so what I want to do is uh, report very briefly on uh, some findings from an initial analysis that we've conducted of these initiatives. Um, and I'll, I'll focus uh, specifically on the different ways in which they position themselves in relation to institutions to kind of see if this idea of execution um, might help us um, think about what's going on here. Um, and so I suppose a sort of... Um, Headline finding, if you like, is, not surprisingly, this is a field that's in, in movement and flux, um, in which we see um, shifting formations of publicness emerging, at, at least in part uh, as a result of sort of efforts to reconfigure or reimagine relationships to institutions, or the relationships between institutions and publics, perhaps more precisely. Uh, and so we've found that really, um, there's a really diverse range of relationships uh, to an ima imaginaries of institutions uh, and taken together this presents a very complex picture I think that might kind of help elaborate the concept of, ex of institution. On the other hand I also want to kind of suggest that it also highlights the continued weight or um, importance of institutions if you like or the kind of authority of institutions in some way. Okay so just to say two things, three things about this kind of where we're coming from with the project. Um, we're seeing that the contemporary situation is one where there's a pro proliferation, difficult word, of uh, public participation initiatives in all kinds of fields, uh, government, social movement, arts, and in research. Um, and this is something that is emerging at least partly as a response to a perceived crisis of established institutions, a crisis of legitimacy and authority um, and a crisis of traditional modes of belonging and public action. And so our interest is then in response to this situation, how are new ways of being acting, be, new ways of being and acting in public emerging? So, in other words, we're interested in how these different public participation initiatives um, attempt to summon, resource or convene publics. Um, and so we've started to um, analyse the uh, initiatives in the Participation Now collection. Um, and one of the many themes that are emerging um, is the sheer complexity of ways in which these initiatives are positioned um, in relation to institutions. Um, it's very much sort of work in progress still, but we've um, created um, a kind of typology, if you like, for categorising the different kinds of relationships that these initiatives have with institutions. Um, a spectrum, if you like, um, that indicates a sort of relative closeness or distance from institutions. Um, so I'll just very, very briefly kind of go through them. Um, one category um, is what we've kind of labelled resourcing. These are initiatives that kind of provide data, information or solutions to established institutions. Um, so, for example, there's um, this initiative called Connected Citizens, which is a game that people could participate in to come up with solutions and ideas, proposals for how to um, run public services more efficiently. There's, there's loads of these kinds of um, initiatives out there. Um, kind of crowdsource-style citizen science projects might be another type of example of this, where you know, citizen scientists, the public, provide data for, for researchers to analyse. 
and which enable them to do things they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Um, a second category is what we call opening up. Um, these are initiatives that in some way involve opening up established institutions or processes to public participation. Um, one example of this is an initiative to, called You Decide, which is a participatory budgeting um, initiative run by Newcastle uh, City Council. Um, there's many other um, types of initiatives like this as well, like participatory arts exhibitions, for example. Um, so I'm going through these a bit quickly because I know we haven't got much time. Um, a third uh, category is what we call holding to account. This is perhaps what most closely resembles the sort of classic idea of, of the function of the public sphere and public opinion. These are initiatives that in some way claim to enable publics to hold authorities or institutions to account. Um, an example of this um, is quite a well-known um, campaigning uh, initiative here in the UK called 38 Degrees, which kind of you know, runs online petitions, campaigns, um, and they've got, you know, they claim to have over 13 million actions taken. So, you know, it's pretty sort of large-scale stuff. Um, these kinds of initiatives, um, I think, are underpinned by sort of fundamental belief in democracy, in liberal democracy, but they kind of are based on an assumption that formal political processes need to be supplemented by civil society actions to hold state authority in check. A fourth category is what I've called counterpublic. Um, these are initiatives that position themselves explicitly in opposition to established um, institutions of political processes. Um, an example of this is um, UK Uncut, which is a direct action group against uh, austerity measures here in the UK. Um, these often kind of use unconventional forms of, of public action to get their point across. Um, and then finally, there's a category called alternative, which are initiatives that kind of deliberately detach themselves from institutions and mainstream politics and in instead enact often very creative and innovative forms of public action at a distance from some such institutions. And they value this kind of action um, in its own right. Uh, and so an example of that is um, this initiative called Talkioki, which is a sort of chat show where people kind of are invited to just in a very dynamic way come in and discuss topics without a preset agenda and it's all kind of about the experience of participating um, rather than um, other things. So um, the question I wanted to raise here then really um, is whether the concept or in what ways the concept of execution can help us make sense of what's going on here. Um, and it might be possible to identify three processes of institutionalization, if we can use that word. Um, through which institutions did. I did. <laughs> and I managed to say it as well without <laughs> stuttering. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, there's, we can see maybe three different types of processes going on here through which institutions are being opened up, challenged, or reconfigured as a result of a sort of situation of movement and flux. Um, one is that established institutions are changing their practices in response to movement and flux. So this can be based on a sort of moral argument that, you know, this is a good thing. It can be an economic argument that it's cheaper to open up and outsource, like we sort of talked about earlier today. Um, the second process is established institutions being um, challenged or opened up from the outside. So these are the categories of sort of holding to account and, and counter-public um, fit into this kind of process. And then finally... Um, the sort of alternative category that I mentioned, um, here we see initiatives that perhaps decenter institutions altogether. 
So, just some questions for reflection to finish. And perhaps then what we're seeing here is a sort of institutional moment, um, an opening up and a decentering of institutions, a situation in which institutions become one set of actors um, among many in a field of movement. <coughs> I think we're also seeing a shift in at least some of these initiatives um, in modes of public action um, from efforts to build institutions and organisations towards an emphasis to creating events, situations or tools that enable people to act in public. At the same time, some of these initiatives also highlight the continued relevance and weight of institutions and many of them are ori oriented towards institutions to take institutions as their reference point or attempt to influence them. <coughs> They're not always successful. Um, and even the sort of initiatives in the alternative category could be seen as based on a recognition or assumption that institutions are closed and that it's futile to engage with them. So I'll just leave it at that as sort of some questions maybe for, for reflection and debate. And I will hand over to Nick to talk more about how we've been doing this project in an institutional way, perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> so, so I want to take this opportunity to briefly reflect. And this is very work in progress it's the first time I've tried to reflect on this in this way is um, to, on, on, a, on how we do our project um, because it's been very important to us um, to this is a practice based project as well as a, um, a research you know research project in a, in a more conventional way um, so I want to raise the question here is whether the kind of work or the kind of movements we're making in this work or uh, whether the kind of kinetic energy we're expending in this work might be considered as institutional work um, cause, because what we've been setting up in recent months is a participatory experiment. Um, why have we done this? Um, because I think what appears to be one of the things that, that appears to be at stake in the field that we're working in is the very existence of the infrastructures and forms of practice needed to export, uh, needed to support rather experiences of shared public attention. So spaces of public argumentation um, and processes of public action. Um, in this field, all those things seem to be at stake to us. So what is also at stake, um, appears to be at stake, is the role of the critical and publicly engaged social researcher in this field. Um, this is what's led us to, um, to, to experiment with um, configuring our project partly as a participatory experiment. So at a time when institutions and publics are increasingly unsettled and in flux, the challenge, possibly, as we see it, is how we as critical researchers care might um, support a participative experiment that could help construct and stage forms of simultaneity um, and individual and collective criticality about the forms of publicness that are emerging in this field itself. So the web platform that you've just had a glimpse of already that we've, um, we've been working on um, contains... a. At its heart, a kind of collection or archive or edited snapshot of the field, where there's more than 100 examples of these experiments, and we provide some information about those, and we've generated a typology of, the, of them that they can be searched through and explored. So it's an active way of exploring this field is what we've um, started to um, set up. It's in a relatively s small scale. We're trying to respond to this challenge that I've just um, set out by um, seeing... Um, how we can create a kind of form of si simultaneity between all these different trajectories of experimentation. So bringing them together is, in a way, animating it as one field that's very contested. Um, so to support 
forms of publicness and criticality about these forms of participation itself. So the site, which is called um, Participation Now, um, illustrates and helps to animate some of the multiple and simultaneous realities that exist in this field and are being developed, and, and that's the field we're working in. Um, so our, the approach that we take is, and so part of it is the archive, and part of it is a, a partnership with an external organisation called Open Democracy that's kind of helping kickstart some debate about these practices, if you like. So our approach is informed by an analysis of some of the ways that the Open University, as an institution, undertakes its public work and how it's always, some of the ways it's always under, tried to undertake its work, especially its histories of supporting forms of dialogic education and research. So uh, by kind of articulating some of the discourses within the un Open University around publicness and its public role, by um, working with some of the existing infrastructures that are there, which is Open Learn is a big web platform that has, you know, tens of thousands of hits every day, and we're, we've in kind of managed to have a space within that. Um, and working also in partnership with external public intermediaries um, to help us legitimise and publicise the initiative for, for a public that's quite sceptical of institutions. Um, we, and we've also been inspired by our analysis the analysis that we're doing of the, of, the of the experiments themselves, if you like, and with our conversations with practitioners in this field. So, as I say, this as a participatory engagement experiment, it's at an early stage. We've got the indications of participation are obviously controversial in their own right. We can have, you know, site visits and we can have a many amount of contributions we get to the debate, um, all sorts of metrics we might use to, and we need to, and we're, we're exploring how we use those. It's in an early stage, but we're already beginning to see that the kinds of the kind of engaged scholarship that work that we're that we're involved in, um, not all of which has been planned in advance. It's something that we've had to work out as we go along and negotiate. Um, has involved various kinds of kind of call and response processes, and trying to set up and support those and be involved in those call and response processes. And there's, I think that we can. I, well, I can see that there's at least three kinds of work um, to, to doing that. Um, so there's the work of designing the infrastructure for these call and response processes. But then there's also been the work during that design and an ongoing work of resisting um, forms of, this word comes up again here, co-optation, whether this means the transformation of this project into some kind of consumer experience of participation or the transformation into commodification of this process into intellectual property. Um, finally, there's been the work of um, constantly att attempting to intensify the relations of simultaneity that the platform is designed to support. So that means growing the site, in a way. Part of this has also involved um, an ongoing critical reflection about whether this project is or is not working to open out new spaces of public attention and new spaces of debate, publicness, argumentation, further experimentation or not. Um, so to, to conclude, we already believe that the, these kinds of it, this, the kinds of intellectual, collaborative and creative work that we've been involved with might be seen as forms of public work. We've also seen we might, what we've been doing as a kind of institutional works too. Um, further than that, we're... We're definitely working also at the boundaries beyond our, you know, within our institution and beyond it, working with external organisations, practitioners who are sceptical about 
um, institutions, etc., through the medium of participation itself. So what we're wondering today is whether this kind of work perhaps also has some kind of institutional dimension to it as well. That's where I'll finish. Thanks. Um, first, I, I, I better do what Paul required earlier on to say who I am. Um, I'm John Brennan, but then when I ask the question of who I am, I, 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 I struggle these days and I wonder whether I'm actually a bit of a case study of, um, ex, um, I have to pronounce it, uh, um, ex-institutionalism. Um, I'm Emeritus Professor at the OU, but I'm also a visiting professor at the London School of Economics, a visiting professor at the University of Bath, a visiting professor at London Metropolitan University, and I've spent a quite, quite a lot of the last year um, doing a couple of projects for the European Commission. I did start wondering whether this notion of um, visiting, whether we could have visiting pr prisoners and visiting um, patients, you know, and, and have a new concept of visiting as opposed to member might actually be an aspect of um, institutionalism. Um, the... the um, and I think, you know, the, the, just the, you know, the final comment on that, I mean, I was very much sort of taken with the notion that um, I have um, a profile, not an identity anymore, um, although as people who know me well will, 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 would also be quick to comment that I have still got my lifelong identity as a Manchester City supporter, so that is still, uh, that is still there. Um, in terms of um, you know what we've what we've just heard, I think the the probably the main thought that it was sort of triggering really um, was a distinction between uh, and particularly when we you know kind of when we collect data about institutions, the extent to which we can clearly distinguish between actions and discourses. I should perhaps have said that basically my field has been researching higher education and researching universities. Therefore, to some extent, my comments are maybe somewhat biased towards that field. And indeed, I think there is a question there where quite a bit of the higher education research literature would make claims for universities being unique institutions in certain ways. And I think questions of, you know, generalizability um, remain. But I think particularly in looking at universities, in terms of projects that I have done, it can often really be quite a struggle to, um, well, Usually, you are, and increasingly these days, you are kind of overwhelmed with, you know, public relations discourses about what the institution is about or is doing. And to distinguish that between that and what is actually happening, you know, what are the key actors, you know, uh, um, 
in the drama doing and, and why are they doing it can often be you know methodologically more um, more, more more challenging um, and the extent to which um, different levels of power and interest come into play uh, and, and on that I think my, my final point if I may I would just like to um, draw on a research project I heard about um, undertaken by some friends of mine at the Autonomous University of Barcelona. Uh, and um, they were part of a European research project looking at the implementation of the Bologna process, or, which is um, a European-level uh, um, strategy for, for kind of... Um, you know, modernising university uh, institutions um, and systems. Um, and what the researchers did in this project, which I found quite interesting, was that they took um, as quite a central piece um, Basil Bernstein's concept of recontextualization, And then they kind of applied this to different levels of authority in terms of the implementation of the Bologna um, process. So when the Bologna process kind of hit nation-state, it got recontextualized into something else, reflecting the local power structures, interests, values, then maybe it would then hit some sort of regional level of governance. Same thing happened again. Then it would hit an individual university. Mm -hmm. Same thing happened again. Down to the faculty, down to the department, down to the, you know. And, and so the relationship between this kind of high level of discourse and the practice on the ground, you know, gets converted into, you know, and they were looking at this conversion process in different contexts, um, which to me, you know, was really kind of quite an interesting, you know, way, and I don't know, I, I found, been coming back to um, universities as institutions, um, you know, it is often said that a feature of universities notwithstanding the neoliberalism and everything, is that at their heart they are quite subversive institutions. Now, again, arguably, they're not the only institutions that, that are, are like that. So, it, again, it's the really the, the discourse versus reality, which I just, you know, find an interesting and quite challenging issue in this. There's a lot in there about the whole question that we were talking about earlier, of the, is there a specific type of institutional bureaucracy? And it makes me think of the Bologna the, the yeah. methodology, if you like, is very similar to, say, international human rights regimes or the World Health Organization, these, these transnational um, forms of bureaucracy that mm. have then got to be filtered down at the various yeah. levels, as yeah. you say. Yeah. That's very interesting. But any, any um, well, let's move on um, uh, to, to, to Ian um, Ian Tucker and Lewis Gooding, who I'm extraordinarily grateful for for, for, for stepping in at the last minute, they, they had no inkling that they would be uh, uh, required to, to, to speak and kindly volunteered. But uh, uh, so over over to you. Yes, yeah, probably worth mentioning that we are not Steve Brown. 
Did I not mention that? <laughs> <laughs> They're big boots to fill. Maybe if we take one each. To, yeah. then, uh, we, <laughs> we might do it justice. We did both do our PhDs with Steve. Um, so I think that's, um, that should help us. Um, we are going to talk about a project that we've just started um, on Ellie Friends. I think you're going to do the lead-in bit, but uh, I think it, what's really nice is that it does resonate with a lot of the stuff we've been talking about today, which should work nicely. Uh, yeah, so there it is. This is Ellie Friends. Okay, so it's a social network site for that Mind have designed, uh, which they direct people to who could be suffering from or experience of a range of kind of different levels of psychological distress. Um, you can see that once you've signed up, it'll look like most other social net. I'm stealing all your kind of introductory bits, aren't I? Sorry. <laughs> Let me just do this bit and then uh, uh, over to Ian. But you can see it would look like most normal social network sites, yeah? So um, when you join up, you create a profile. So I suppose we could speak about the kind of profiles and identity bit that's come up a few times today. Um, and people would talk across this platform um, through their profile. So you have a little picture that represents yourself and then you can uh, talk to people directly or you can, like with other social network sites, put stuff on the main wall, which will be seen by everybody in that network. Um, but yeah, so it's so it's kind of emphasises this peer support. Yeah, and the people in there, it's moderated by the elephant, by the L. Yeah, but there are actually people behind the scenes that moderate the conversations and make sure that if there's anybody that seems to be kind of suffering too much that they're directed to different services. So, sorry, there you go. No, 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 no. Thanks for giving that, that, that kind of intro. I guess it might be useful if I provide a little bit of kind of context to, the, to that mm. work then. Mm. So um, we're both kind of social psychologists, yeah, so we're interested in things like subjectivity and stuff we've touched on today. And um, But one stream of research that we've done kind of together maybe over the last two or three years then has been around kind of technology, in a broad sense around kind of mm -hmm. technologies, okay, so technologies and subjectivity, identity. Um, what it means when you start connecting through kind of what happens to communities when they start connecting te through technologies and things and digital media um, and we've done some work along those lines and I, I guess um, in terms of I, mean, I hadn't really thought about this obviously until about an hour ago about what this might how this might fit into kind of institutions and institutions and stuff but what this has kind of become for us which is early friends is our kind of current empirical bit of this stream of research is um, yeah, yeah. So the the notion of kind of technologies and health, okay. So kind of institutions of healthcare and and, and how technologies are, are being recruited, you know, within that by service providers, yeah, to provide services, okay. And what this kind of means for people who have to use these services. Now, I've got quite a long-standing kind of interest in community mental health. I've done quite a lot of research in kind of in community mental health, um, and particularly in in the relationships between kind of dis mental distress and space. Yeah, so um, this is offering a new kind of line of this for me in terms of how got technologies we can figure our, our kind of experiences of uh, of space. But of course, what's happening then, and any friends is a, is a good example of this. Then people are being increasingly kind of required to access health services and mental health services through technologies. Yeah. So we've had a shift. I mean, uh, Miguel talked about it a lot this morning in terms of asylums, yeah, the, the shift from kind of asylum care to kind of community care, yeah, where you would have people, service users, going into kind of day centres and a lot of the care being provided in these kind of spaces, which are like your little institutions in and of themselves, if you like. But now I think what we see, and this is, you know, I say this this, this um, project with the Mental Health Charity Mind is a, is a real kind of current live issue in terms of this, is, is 
these day centres, you know, due to kind of funding cuts and stuff, are being kind of closed down, yeah? So charities like mine can't run all their day centres anymore. Or if they do, they can't have them open 9 to 5 like they used to Monday to Friday. It's, you know, you can come in for one hour or something. But in its place, what we have got is this lovely social media site, AnyFriends, you know, where you can kind of sign up and you can kind of, there's lots of people on there, people from all over the place, and you can kind of access support and you can provide support and stuff. And I think this is really interesting, you know, for many reasons, I guess, in terms of what we were saying today. It's a bit tricky, isn't it, when, we, when you start thinking about whether you want to put a value on this, yeah, and what your judgment is about kind of value, whether it's a good or a bad thing. Uh, it's interesting because one of the things with this project is, is as I say, we're working with Mind. And um, I hesitate slightly because I realise this is probably on camera, but anyway, I've, I've gone down that line already. But we suspect Mind probably wants us to tell quite a positive story about their early friend site. Yeah, you know, which would be completely reasonable on, on their behalf. This is the first major social networking kind of initiative that they've put in place for peer support for mental health services. But we mm. haven't started the empirical work is starting literally now as we speak. But um, we don't know if it's going to be a positive story we're going to tell about this. Yeah, we, you know, these things are going to be really tricky, aren't they? You know, so so the the institution we don't know where these. You know, we know quite a lot about the spaces in which mental health communities are configured. You know, before the technologies come along. But what does this mean to those communities? You know, how are people connected to it? Where is it happening? Mine tell us that kind of 60% of people accessing this is through like mobile technology, isn't it? So mm. kind of where are they when these things are happening? I suppose, sorry, can I just quickly yeah. add something? I mean, as you kind of mentioned this morning, um, it, I think the, the thing for me is not immediately about whether it's positive or negative, but just it's changed, yeah? So it's about movement instead. So there's a there's a shift towards a kind of personalization agenda in the mental health sector, which means that people now are spending more time at home on their own. That's the result, yeah? Instead of going out uh, with a social worker for a few hours, you're now at home, yeah? Because of the way that the care is managed, it means that you're with a family relative or whatnot, and that might give you access to a site like this. So um, I suppose, again, whether it's kind of positive or negative, we're looking at what that movement is like. I suppose, and one of the things we're interested in looking at is how people talk about their experience of care kind of moving from one space to another. So, so what's the impact of now kind of using this space to speak to others about particular issues, yeah? So, mm. um, um, so, so I think there's kind of a lot to say in there, isn't there? It's a kind of, it's this new space where a lot of care is done, this kind of digital care that a lot of people kind of seem to be talking about, but it's all moderated by um, people that aren't necessarily psychiatrists or have a psychological-type background. So you might notice that it's... What kind of a space is it then? Yeah, They can be directed to people that need more urgent care should they need it, but most of the time it's just moderated by computer people. Mm. Yeah, that actually know how to work the site should there be a problem. Yeah, so if someone's in a distress, they can delete their posts immediately if they've said anything that could be harmful, move them, direct them to a space which is going to work for them. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting how that stuff works. Actually, the care is now done by those people, really. Yeah, because they're the kind of first line of defence when something looks to be a bit wrong. Yeah. Um, Sorry, back to you. Well, uh, just, follow, just, just following on from that, it's, um, I mean, I think the other one of the other interesting things about this kind of digital care, if you like, is it almost implies a 
uh, a, a need to, to for self care. You need to do the mm. care yourself. Okay, you know. So when you're sat in an asylum, I mean, they were far from great, of course. You know, but the, the care was kind of done to you, wasn't it? A lot of the time. Whereas now it's like, look, you know, the service wise again, we've got this thing, early friends, or we've got you know, there's countless projects going on at the moment about developing apps for young people mental health problems and all kinds of things. Yeah, um, but there's a kind of seems to be a bit of a requirement there for, for you to. Do, well, yeah, do your own care. You need to be able to kind of access them, okay? And there's, there's a, a number of kind of things involved in that which I think we probably need to know a little bit more about. One is our relationship with kind of technologies, because if you like, you know, it's suggesting quite a straightforward relationship with technologies, you know, that these things are just tools for us to utilise, and we're quite comfortable kind of doing that, okay? And yet there's, I mean, I'm not going to go into the theory of it, but of course there's a whole loads and loads of lovely kind of stuff from the likes of, Stiegler and Simondon about the philosophy of technology and what that means for kind of um, subjectivity and how we relate to kind of technologies and some of the kind of anxieties and things that can go on in in that. Um, the other thing, which I think Lewis probably touched on a little bit, is as well. It, it almost some of these sites is almost requires you you almost need to particularly when it's kind of mental stress be, to be able to articulate your distress yeah i mean think about mental stress a lot of times you, you can't quite put it into words you know it's a feeling it's kind of effective you know you're, you're lost you need some help and yet with sites like this there's 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 a requirement isn't there to kind of be able to articulate that in some way yeah so that that can be quite problematic i think potentially problematic in itself um that's one more point I was going to make about that. I, what it was, I, I mean, I just on that. I mean, I think I can pick up that and and wonder whether perhaps that's the kind of noise, yeah. Perhaps that's the kind of parasite, yeah, that you can't always articulate that distress. You can't actually use this site because what you want to say you can't actually get into mm. words, yeah, mm. or whatever you're trying to say doesn't translate into this kind of experience. I suppose when we were talking about whether you know what we want to find or you know whatever you might assume we'll find, you know, it's kind of. I, th I think one one of the things I really like about this project is that we're trying to do as much naturalistic stuff as possible. Yeah, so it's kind of looking at what people say in this site a lot of the time. Yeah, so uh, x amount of people and just asking them for permission to to look at what they say. Yeah, which is quite nice. Perhaps this mm. says something about how we can kind of. And I don't want to be the kind of unengaged person that wants to talk about method. <laughs> yeah, this is never a good sign. But. Um, but how do we look at institutions then? You know, perhaps this is something we need to look at kind of naturalistically. You know, it would be kind of something that I would certainly say that we're trying to do within this project. Because one of the, the empirical part of the project, which is starting uh, literally now, uh, is um, getting online posts and things from people, yeah? So that's kind of the empirical work, getting over a period of a month or so, isn't it? Getting all their kind of online posts and looking at how they're, you know, seeking support and things. Um, mm. The other thing, I guess, which, which touches, touches on what we were talking about earlier as well is the notion of kind of publicness, yeah? So we've, we've also written, not, not in terms of um, mental health, but around, you know, kind of what happens when you start connecting with people kind of online, yeah, social media and presenting yourself. And that's very much about a kind of profile as well, if you like, isn't it? How we kind of produce ourselves and you know, social media, kind of publicness and things. So that, that's almost another requirement of this kind of technologies, yeah? You know, that... You can seek support through something like Elephants, absolutely, but that might involve an initial, like, you know, sticking up to, there are 10,000 users of this site, yeah, sticking up a, you know, I'm in crisis kind of thing to 10,000 people, yeah? You know, you can't see the faces of those people, but that, that again, is kind of quite a, something we were not maybe used to doing in that way, you sort of seek support from people you know quite closely and things. So again, there's a, there's a notion, I mean, that, this is a comment about social media more broadly, of course, but there's a notion about kind of publicness and kind of privateness and how those get shifted and things as well, isn't it? Um, 
Yeah. I don't know if you, do you want to say anything else on that? I don't think so. No, I think we're pretty much there. Um, yeah, sorry, I was not such a polished performance as everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have as much time. I must say, I thought it was particularly oh, right. polished. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, first over to Darren, I think. But anyway, no, it's really no. Actually, it's really kind of the first time I've I've really heard what you're kind of doing properly. And um, I work with Ian um, in University of East London. He's a psychologist. I'm. I suppose what you'd call a psychosocialist, I don't know, psych- <laughs> working in psychosocial studies anyway. And, um, and yeah, my name's Darren Ellis, and um, yeah, it's been great to be here today, thanks. I've, you know, I came here seeking concepts, seeking new concepts, and, I've come, and I think I'm going to come away with some new concepts, so thank you all you know, for presenting your wonderful stuff. And you guys, you know, it was really interesting, actually, to hear about your work. And I suppose I can talk a little bit about it in relation to my work. And actually, I do some work with Ian as well, um, Tucker, in, on um, a surveillance project. And that's why I'm a little bit kind of interested in, in this whole notion of institutionalism. Um, and I suppose, you know, also one of my interests is um, affect and emotion. I've just written a book with Ian, again, on um, social psychology of emotion. And um, and I'm interested in that in relation to surveillance in how, for example, and I suppose in terms of institutions, is ha- how we engage with them, how we effectively and emotionally engage with them. And particularly, you know, um, I've been looking at some, some, some old kind of sociological work, and I think it's quite relevant today, in terms of, you know, we live with a lot of these now, thinking in relation to surveillance, we have a lot of kind of abstract systems within society, right? So what I mean by abstract systems is systems that we don't actually have any personal contact with, right? So we've lost a lot of our face-to-face kind of relationships that we make with institutes. So Giddens talks about, for example, access points, okay? So... An institute like the National Health Service, you might have an access point, which is, for example, the doctor, right, or the GP, yeah? So you go and you develop a relationship with that institute through the access point of the GP, okay? So, you know, quite often we kind of assess the institute through its access point, and the access point is where we have some kind of personal contact with the institute, Okay, but institutes now are becoming increasingly impersonal. Yeah? So we don't have that kind of personal, affective engagement with the institutes, with ex-institutes, ext- or whatever we call them, yeah? ex-institutes. And so, you know, I'm quite interested in then how we develop a relationship, for example, with something like mind. Yeah? And what, what, how, do we, how do we kind of, you know go and develop a kind of trusting relationship with these institutes, whereas before we would be able to read kind of the affect, affective expressions of a face, okay? You can't read the affective expressions of a face, perhaps, through an institute that hasn't got that personal representation. It still remains kind of impersonal, away from us, you know, detached, okay? So... 
then how do we kind of develop these relationships? And perhaps this is, you know, what, what, what we do then, what, what um, who is it? Um, Goffman talks about face work, right? So when we meet a person, we may read their expressions. We kind of have this micro-affective engagement with them where we develop a relationship, perhaps a trusting or a distrusting relationship with them. It's increasingly difficult to um, develop that level of engagement with these extitutes. So what happens then is we have the internet and we have websites. Yeah? And so these now have become the, the kind of faces of an institute. So I'm quite interested in this kind of interface work that we might have with an institute through its website. I think this is a really nice example of that kind of interface work through the elephant, right? The elephant is someone who we kind of have some kind of emotional engagement with, effective engagement with, yeah? And that kind of bring, draws us into the institute in some kind of way of mind. With mind. So, you know, that's my tuppence work anyway. Thanks. I found that very interesting as well, Try, especially trying to hook it back into what we talked about this morning and this afternoon. Uh, I don't know how many reflections I'll have. I'll see. I'll keep an eye on the time. Uh, the first one was that it's not a immediate reflection. Is that for me, what I picked up this morning is that institution and institutional practice is a mode of practicing. And what interested me a lot is that it focuses on questions about movement, so what is movement as a mode of practice, coding, etc., to which we can understand it. And it reminded me <coughs> about, you know, Georg Simmel's work around exchange in his work on money, which was really an element where you had the money actually, it's not just the money, but it's actually an, a kind of a modes of practices change from kind of feudal relationship and boundedness and all the hierarchies that came with it to the land and to the guild professionally. And so by moving into money making and trading you could move to a city and therefore you had a different you had different subjectivities, you had different modes of relating, you had different notions of what I mean notions of freedom emergence, but you had all kinds of issues that one counted in. And in some way what I can see and the question I have for you, whether there is insofar this is an institutional practice, what you're researching, what the mode of practices in terms of movement, there seems to be something going on which you present as a result of cuts and so on uh, towards somehow detaching mental illness but also what it means to be mentally ill and persons who practice being mentally ill, uh, if I can put it that way, to detach them from being bound to particular charitable organizations, particular sets of the caring institution, as it's said, and bind them to that way. To what extent is this, the, this mode of, it's not just a technology, it's a mode of practice that people are encouraged to do and which they practice themselves, has that element of change and detachment in it. And what does that mean? Has it any of that? Or not. And so that's what I was in, would be interested to hear a bit more about. The second thing I want to say, is, which was brought out very well as well, is 
that we move from identity and identification to connections, not move. There is an element about connecting, right? And there is something that you have here, is what I would like to hear a little bit more about, is what connecting is going on here? Who connects people to the website? How what connecting is mediated and structured? When you're in, if I create a profile, what is that going to, what's happening here? Who am I connecting with? Only people in the website? Is there going to be someone else? And so that was another thing I would be interested in, to see how you move away from, therefore, from the person. You speak about personalization, but in some way personalization is a misnomer. It's not about the person, because in this website the person somehow disappears. It's the data you put on the website and the way you talk yourself into something that meets then I need to talk that actually makes you being what you are. Mm -hmm. So personalization is somehow a misnomer, at least from my understanding of the person, as, which has the connotation of the individual, although the person was, I think, a more religious kind of connotation than the individual with its liberal economic connotations, if I'm right. But the person is the whole. There is no whole here, as far as I can see, to some extent. So it's interesting. So I wanted to know a little bit. You can't, I mean, I know you can do probably a whole two-hour spiel about this, but that was something I thought was fine. And then finally, this has to do with, you know, with the question that was raised this morning, which I found very interesting, which is what happens to the definition of what is a professional? So who has authority to define in this case mental illness or a mental condition or a distress or whatever. So who is that? Because you mentioned that, which is particularly interesting. Which, uh, they're often not psychologists or psychiatrists. There could be even computer people who are well aware of computer technology, or there could be people who are very skilled in navigating websites and helping people explain them how to navigate the website. Now, that's quite interesting because then you said they will take them to where they actually need to be now, traditionally, in my, if I do the traditional head of profession, that's the role, certainly, of a medical professional to tell you where you belong with your kind of distress that you have. Mm -hmm. So it was interesting what's happening on count, what counts as that. And that, of course, we also will have an impact on what does it mean to be mentally ill or have mental health issues, etc., etc. So that were three, the three elements that I wanted to so the movements, the the detachments that are created, the connecting that's happening, mm -hmm. and uh, the question of what's happened to what it means to be a professional mm -hmm. in that area. There's some good questions, I think. Yeah. Do you want to go first, or you want uh, me? I can, can, I can start. <laughs> sure. Um, I think the authority question is really interesting because, um, I mean, the, I'll let you talk about the computer a bit if, if you yeah, like. But, the, but yeah. the authority thing in terms of how do you get on here, I mean, anyone can go on here. Yeah, you can sign in now and, you know, get on there yeah so so there's not necessarily an authority in terms of allowing you access to this particular site okay you're you're the authority if you if you feel you're distressed and want support or you've just got a, a weird desire to go onto a website and look at other people being distressed then you can you can do it okay when it comes to moderating it then then that comes down to the charity Okay, so um, there, were, there, there are moderators at Mind who sit there and, and moderate it. Um, that's probably going to be a mixture of kind of computer people and Mind staff, isn't it, Lewis? 
Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Formulating answers okay. to the that's second gonna, one. That, that, that's going to be a combination of uh, computer people and, and mind <laughs> staff, okay? Um, but that, that, that's, I mean, this, so that, that's interesting. But, of course, this, don't forget the um, specifics of this website are that it's run by Mind, a major mental health charity, I'm sure we probably all know that, who also don't adopt a uh, diagnostic medical approach to helping people, yeah? So, it, you know, you do not, well, I mean, people might, when you go on there, people might say this, but this isn't a diagnostic model. People, you know, we, you go on there, you don't know someone's what sort of diagnosis they've received or anything. Mind uh, don't adopt that uh, uh, and that approach to to um, to kind of helping people with mental distress. It's far more kind of general. Do you want to say a bit more? About yeah, I, th I think there's a lot to say to those questions. I mean, I was just making some notes that this this kind of idea of detaching from institutions, which yeah. I think is the kind of first first question you asked, which seems really. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? So, so they kind of approached us initially to say, look, we're we're trying to launch this kind of approach, which is anti-diagnosis, which is all about peer support, which isn't about labels. It's about kind of people helping people in a in a in the particular space. So, actually, to them, the role of the moderator, which I'll come on to talk to you about a little bit later, but actually, to them, that's not a big part of it. If you see what I mean, the the moderators there do very little from their point of view. Actually, mm. it's about this peer support. Mm. Yeah, so lots of people advocating the role of peer support and the power of actually just talking to one another, how that can help a lot of people that experience mental distress. So, I think there is a question about who is the authority and who kind of manages what is illness and what is problems. But in these spaces, they are set up as social spaces. That kind of work to them would be done in other places as well, I often get the feeling, is, is, is kind of their view. Um, interestingly, it started in Facebook. So initially they had, a, they had an Elefriends group in Facebook mm. yeah, and then immediately kind of exploded the boundaries of that site because how many thousands of people joined up in the first day and then realised that they needed their own site. Yeah, so I kind of get the feeling that there was, all, there was always a sense of detachment, I get the feeling, from from getting away from the kind of charity image, if you see what I mean. So they, they kind of intentionally positioned themselves in a social sphere. Yeah, it was meant to be set up as a kind of social enterprise, I get the feeling. Um, so, so, you know, kind of from this perspective then, I think mine do try to be quite hands-off. Perhaps that's something that the institution has to do to some extent. It kind of has to position itself as outside of that institution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if it's going to work, you get the feeling that they need to do that work of distancing itself from the original. I think someone had that as one of the kind of mm. principles. I think you, you mentioned that as of how the institution works. Yeah, so perhaps that's kind of some of that functioning here. Um, so, so okay, mentioned the authority bit a little bit in there as well. I mean, the connecting element is is very interesting in your idea, kind of wholeness. I think that's something that that is that is fascinating to us. So, it's actually. You know, it isn't people talking to other people, is it? It's profiles talking to profiles a lot of the time. Yeah. So perhaps actually what becomes the community or becomes that space then is the sort of gaps between those profiles. Yeah. So they're never really a kind of full community. They're just this one profile saying, I'd like to speak to you. Here are my hobbies and interests. And you, you, that's how the community kind of forms. But um, what's fascinating is that if you compare it to... Um, I mean, we've only been kind of looking at it for a little while, but if you compare it to something like Facebook, yeah, where they, you know, as kind of 
you could immediately see a kind of Baudrillard kind of obscene <coughs> amount of communication that goes on in there. Yeah, people just talking all day. You know, I had fish for lunch, this kind of stuff. You know, kind of really vacuous, totally innocuous stuff. Um, when you go into here, it is, hi, let's talk. Who, yeah, this is, this is who I am. Yeah. So as soon as you enter that community, people do talk to you. Mm. Yeah. And they want to talk to you about your experiences, how you're feeling. What it, and it feels a lot closer than, than my, from my perspective of, of what you might see in other social network sites. So there's something about the kind of connection then I get the feeling in this particular site that is of value. Yeah, so that might be something an institution could... And, and just to kind of follow on though, I think, I think you made a nice point as well about kind of information. So, you know, Simondon will talk about information as being the key kind of aspect of our relationship between bodies and technologies, yeah? You know, so the work kind of gets done in and through the information. Yeah, people, people become individuated through the kind of individual... through information. So... I think there's something quite nice about that because, like you say, it is. I mean, there are kind of pictures on here and there are people's profiles as well, though they don't have to be. But yeah, it's, it's largely done kind of through text. But then also, someone would also talk about kind of any individual kind of process of individuation. There'll always be something missed out by that, yeah? So, kind of pre individual kind of realm. And, and so, I think what's quite nice, what we were quite keen on, on in this project is, is trying to kind of get, you know, not access to that as well, but kind of open up it methodologically so that. We're not only just kind of analysing kind of the online posts and stuff, we're doing all of that, but we're also going to do some interviews with people, yeah? Because you also want to talk to people about how they feel about using this kind of thing. You, you don't want to just take their engagement with it in entirety from what is posted online, yeah? So I think, I think, that's, I think that's kind of um, quite important as well. And I was going to say something else, and I can't remember what it was now. I keep doing that. Um... um but yeah, no, I had another point actually, which isn't specifically about early friends, but but the notion of kind of institutions and institutions when uh, that I picked up on when Miguel was talking this morning is, and I know we've problematised this whole kind of uh, um, binary positioning of it anyway. But I mean, another project I'm doing is in is in the um, Royal Bethlehem Psychiatric Hospital in South London. Yeah, this is like one of the oldest kind of asylums you know in in, in the world, although it's obviously moved around a little bit. But if you go in there. Uh, um, and, and kind of talk to the staff and talk to the patients and see how movement works in there. I mean, th that kind of, as an institution, relies on, if you like, institutional kind of elements, yeah? You know, it relies on the fact that people are going there and actually don't spend very much time there because they can't cope with all these people coming in. They're, they're, what it really requires is people coming in and getting moved out quite quickly, you know? So, uh, now, of course, if someone's really, really ill and stuff, or particularly if they've ended up on the forensic ward, then, you know, that, that, that can bring different elements to it. Um, but if there aren't, isn't a criminal element of, of it, often it's almost like executional kind of practice in terms of shifting people out of movement because the space can't cope with the sheer amount of people. And I think that's something that's happening increasingly with kind of uh, um, reductions in funding and stuff, you know, and increasing kind of uh, need on, uh, in, on resources, drawing on resources. <coughs> And um, just the final thing I want to sort of pick up on something that Darren said as well, which it was quite funny with, with the Elephants Project was around kind of trust and things, yeah? So the, these are people with varying levels of kind of mental distress. And so we from the university came in and we're working with, with, with MIND and we came in with our kind of ethical procedure that we have to do, a participant information sheet with like five paragraphs and they consent form and it all looks very scary, doesn't it? But of course, you know, to you... To, you, to the university to allow you to go anywhere near anything like this they're, they're, uh, they're like right you've got to have all this 
and we gave that kind of mind and it was quite interesting because if anything mind were far less kind of concerned about those kinds of things than we were okay and what they were we were going look we've got to get this ethical procedure in there yeah and they're like okay we need to kind of work out and this is where the computer people come in as well we need to work out how we're going to insert that into this system and the way they kind of ended up doing it is through you know the ellie yeah through ellie the, the, the elephant so it's like so you go on there and a little pop-up comes up and goes um um oh ellie's working with some of his friends from the university of east <laughs> london on a new little project you know one pop-up you know click here if you want to find out some more so you click through you know this project's interested in how people you know and ellie's with you all the way this is the thing about the site you know so it, that the trust comes through you know the through ellie you know and uh, which i thought was kind of really mm. interesting the way that that all, that all got organized Right. Uh, let's move on to the to the last um so make make Lynch who's in his uh decade uh Queen Mary is going to um give her presentation event Okay, so um two things. I've been trying to change this in response through the day to what everything's been saying, so it might have gone a bit awry. And I guess if I want to sort of situate it in terms of um, the institutional or institutional formations that I'm talking about. This presentation is aimed at le- the level of disciplines, so the level of disciplines within public health research, um, and also the nature of health. What is health? Where is it situated? And how it operates? Okay, so the vignette that I'm going to describe um, is from the world of public health research and consists of an account of what you might call an institutional methodology. Um, So the design and implementation of complex health interventions, or as I hope to demonstrate, what might be more accurately described as traditionally institutional, and I mean disciplinary bounded, responses to institutional formations. Thinking through how institutions might shape and inform health interventions is also a response to my experience as, I'm going to get your word in here, Paul, as an exhabitant. Mm-hmm. So a social anthropologist trained in an interdisciplinary research centre who has to develop a research trajectory through a public health department in a medical school. Someone who has to engage with, manage and work with the opening up of traditional bound disciplines of the social and life sciences and who is required to produce instrumental knowledge that can help navigate the increasingly blurry boundaries between health, disease and illness and who also may be a little reticent about being made to do this at work. Okay, so in 2000, the Medical Research Council in the United Kingdom published um, a document called A Framework for the Development and Evaluation of RCTs for Complex Interventions to Improve Health. This publication was authored by a working group that consisted of primary care specialists, medical sociologists, behavioural scientists, health service researchers, an orthopaedic surgeon and public health experts, including those who designed clinical trials. The framework considered itself to be groundbreaking as it instructed researchers not to isolate and assess the efficacy of one component or what they termed active ingredient over another, so as in the case of a classic drug trial, but to evaluate components across a range of different domains. So they, they turn these into biomedical, organisational, psychological, social, all at work simultaneously. 
Hence, the document sees the opportunity to develop and implement interventions as being everywhere, at the level of urban design, food production, and individuals' eating and exercising habits, and the doctoring habits of medical professionals. The framework, which in a later incarnation sort of toned down a bit and moved from a framework to guidance, asserted that qualitative research was particularly useful for refining the nature of an intervention and predicting its possible impact. The implicit assumption was that adopting a mixed methods approach to the complex, and I would argue what they mean by this is the social or, and the subjectivity of various actors, could be adequately captured and fed into the, um, the final design of the intervention and trial. In an interview I conducted um, with a complex a researcher who was very experienced in um, conducting complex interventions, she mentioned that she used to, and she meant used to, so back in 2000 when, they, when the guidance was first published, want to dev- design interventions that were like Rolls Royces. However, over the years it had become apparent to her that she, she had to stick to designing minis as all the bells and whistles attached to Rolls Royces weren't realistic. That is, it was becoming increasingly apparent through an ever-mounting pile of negative findings that this approach to complexity raised more questions than it answered. Um, it, was in, it was often impossible um, to track accurately track um, the causal relationships between these ever-emerging and increasing amount components that were integrated into the interventions. Um, Moreover, patients don't change their behaviour. Behaviour change is an incredibly difficult thing to achieve, um, and this is what some of the um, researchers told me, and doctors and nurses refuse to change their practice. Uh, One of the interventions that I was working with um, in the public health unit that I was at previously said it was the nurses' faults that the interventions didn't work because they didn't read the cue card properly. This betrayal of the territory of complex interventions was also apparently in a meeting I had um, with the PI of a complex intervention I was working on, um, which was attempting to facilitate the informed choice um, in the prescription of statins for the primary prevention of coronary heart disease. The study consisted of interviews um, with GPs about how they went about this in their practice and simulated consultations with actors where this prescribing decision was acted out. And this is quite a common method now in medical schools to train and to do research. I was employed to collect and analyse this data and then see the extent to which informed choices were achieved. I was supposed to identify uh, the barriers um, to it that GPs produced in their practice, assumptions they made about patients and the extent to which they grasped their values and beliefs and then fed them back in the form of relevant information. Basically, I was there to see um, the extent to which an off-the-shelf theory of informed choice was enacted. This theory posited that informed choice could be achieved by matching a patient's values with relevant information and in doing so, prompting a behavioural outcome, so a choice around prescription, yes, no, or maybe later. It assumed that behaviour was contained in the mind, um, and these are probably all these are things that I would obviously say, given that I'm an anthropologist, but I think they're probably things that you'd all obviously say too. Um, it was assumed that behaviour was contained in the mind, divorced from the places in which decisions are made. Information was neutral, decisions were linear, and could not account for the relationships that developed between clinicians and patients during the course of their interactions. 
I said all this, but was finding it hard to convince my colleague that we should try another tact, to see what GPs did already, and then think about what informed choices, shared decisions and good care might look like from there. Um, This, of course, seemed very flaky. What were we testing? How could their interpretations of informed choice be trusted? At least the -the off-the-shelf model had been proven, um, and what he meant by proven was published in a number of places, and therefore had an air of reliability about it. I didn't really have an alternative of the same kind to offer, just a way of muddying the waters. In frustration, I said, is this really how we make decisions? Sometimes you don't make decisions um, when we're aware of them. Do you, as a GP, and luckily this researcher was also a GP, think it is possible to access a patient's mind and extract their values and beliefs with with regard to statins? Is this information you provide? provide patients a mirror of such values? Do you do nothing with the information before you communicate it back to them? Surely tailoring information to patients is a highly interpretive act, one that requires skills that such a definition of informed choice cannot even begin to capture. By thinking through these decisions together as people who make decisions, the possibility of capturing the components necessary to produce an informed choice did not seem possible. It might have been a clear but it wasn't reliable in terms of how it related to the day-to-day of clinical practice, an idiom that the GP felt comfortable with. As we went on to discuss what he did as a GP in this context, the picture became more complicated and variable. Different methods of consulting were deployed depending on the patient and what constituted relevant information constantly changed in relation to the different types of patients and even the GP's thoughts and opinions about various technical, ethical and economic issues. This set of relations was evoked in the interviews with 24 GPs. We, asked, um, we also asked to reflect on, um, in, on their practice in this area. Moreover, when we hashed out in detail, such variability did not always imply bad and even practice, but necessary adaption, adaptations or movements between different forms of knowledge that sometimes enabled good practice. Again, as was played out in the interviews, making judgments or the wrong judgments was a constant anxiety, but such practices um, were all they had when trying to inform patients sufficiently and appropriate about the issue at hand. This discussion and other similar discussions provided us with an alternative research focus, a recognition of the many factors that could potentially shape relevant information and the types of decisions that could then be made. Consequently, our intervention or suggestion of what an intervention might look like, which kind of annoyed the funder because they wanted an intervention, became mediated around identifying good patterns of um, practice. That is, in hindsight, we were beginning to see such decision work as a form of ecological and not mechanical complexity where different forms of information were just stacked on top of each other. Our intervention was modest and temporary. It didn't try and capture everything and do too much. Identify the active ingredient of an informed choice that could be applied to a range of different prescribing decisions. It was also vulnerable in that it was difficult to prove by existing frameworks of evaluation concerned with reliability and fidelity. However, this very vulnerability, the focus on patterns of potential good practice and their ability to adapt to the variability of practice conditions is what made them useful um, and in a back-to-front way reliable. Okay, so drawing on the work I have undertaken with Paul um, and as a kind of artefact of my position as somebody who has to 
contribute to the development of public health in interventions. I want to start asking the question, how can the liminality unleashed when institutions, so medicine, life science disciplines and their associated subjects, are cracked open? How can that be managed positively? What modes of intervention can be developed to engage with institutional formations of health? How can we positively haunt and move through health, rather than is the case with informed choice or complex interventions, attempt to capture something or capture or reveal something that isn't really there? Health professionals and patients have to grapple with knowledge and evidence, which is often complicated, uncertain and implicates multiple epistemologies and standards of evaluation. It is an effect of and moves between being evidence-based, being patient-centred, pinpoint accuracy, um, predictive knowledge, the molecular and the biopsychosocial, which is a term that a lot of public health people are now using, and as we have discussed today, institutional and institutional formations. It's quite ambivalent and it can have positive and negative implications for service users or what we used to call patients and what we used to call healthcare experts. Is there a method of pleasantly or positively managing um, liminality? Here I would like to suggest again, with, as with everyone else who suggested today, that movement rather than capture is a quality that could be built into interventions that attempt to engage with complex health problems. Um, but obviously not all health problems because I don't think it would be that appropriate for everybody, everything. In particular, vulnerable forms of knowledge, and by this I mean the disconnections between different forms of evidence and know-how and their subsequent interpretation need to be valued. This may inform the development of an everyday form of experimentality or maybe what Jeff described, just described as a mode of practice through which such vulnerable forms of knowledge and evidence can be mediated um, and adapted to respond to um, ecological complex processes of health. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, before commenting that, that last intervention, I would like to recover some ideas from the previous one, because I think that in, in, in the three cases, there is a, a, a substantial question about who is the political subject. I mean, um, and I think that's a very interesting uh, <coughs> question that uh, the, this, uh, this uh, debate we, have, we are having today about institution institutions can have something to do with it. Let's begin with, with the, 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 the first idea. Uh, who is the, the political subject? In, in our societies, it is supposed it is the citizen. But actually, who is the, the, the main political subject is, is, the, is those who are in the parliament, who are supposed to be the, 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 the place, the, the institution, <laughs> where, where uh, our rep representatives, representatives are and, and decide for us. I think that there is something important in it because um, the, the idea of representation is, is, is central in, in, this, uh, in this political system with all the problems that representation has. <laughs> um, and I think that one, one, one problem of the representation is also transmitted to some participative techniques. I, I was involved also in a... In a, in a in a, in, a, in a participatory uh, technique, and and I, I said 
I, I meant um, participatory techniques. Uh, in a participatory uh, debate, those who were collected there, the first question they, they made was, who are representing here? Huh? Who are we representing here? So that's the, 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 the idea of representation contamines all our political systems. And I think that this, is, that this has to do with, with the, a wrong conception of democracy, which Rancière, uh, Jacques Rancière, I think that uh, explains very well when he says that we are used to think in democracy in terms of the, uh, the government of people by people, and we should think in terms of the government of anyone. That means that democracy appears as something that substitutes uh, previous ways of, 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 of governing, aristocracy, uh, um, um, uh, gerontocra gerontocracy, uh, whoever you pronounce it, uh, and so on. What, what does it mean? It means that in all these um, solutions, there is a, a, um, uh, a principle that says who must govern, who is who has to make things public and govern these public things. But once you don't have any more a principle, then you have democracy. Because then it's anyone, because there is no principle. And in that sense, the government is governed of anyone. It's not, it's not the, the, the most... savant uh, uh, or, or the, 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 the oldest one. We don't have a principle, so it can be anyone. And it, if it can be anyone, we must discuss it, and this is politics. So this is the, the, the argument that Brancier uses to reverse the, the traditional way to think between politics and democracy. We are supposed to, to be in a political world, and then democracy is a solution. And he says, no, politics is only possible if we have a democracy. Otherwise, we don't need politics anymore. I think this is important because... Uh, uh, when we witness these attempts to cancel politics, what they are canceling is democracy, actually. And, well, well then, then one, one um, example of who is the political subject? It is uh, the, the anyone? Or uh, is a problem of representation? Is the political subject a representative of the rest? Or what? We see the same in the in the in the the same problem in the in the um, um, medical debates, for example, with these associations of patients uh, with uh, with uh, strange uh, diseases. Hmm? Calon explains very well some cases. I think the myopathy uh, disease. Uh, what happens with this? Who is who is the the the, 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 the political subject here? And what is it? and again, uh, as we as as we asked before, the authority question: who is who has the authority? That's very interesting because normally we would expect that uh, experts, scientists, are the ones. Actually, they are mobilized in order to say that these are re really a political subject because they exist as something because there is such pathology. So they they are recruited, they are involved to de demonstrate that such, such a pathology exists, and so they can help to constitute that, uh, that political subject. But at the same time, who are those who know more about the pathology? Normally are parents. 
Parents are those who get the money to make researchers, to make the research, to, to do the research. So researchers need parents to get the money. They need parents to, to have a, a place, actually, in the, in the academia and to, to do something relevant. So what is the, the authority here? And again, I think that, that the, 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 the question about political subject um, is, is, is on the table. It's the big question. And, and, we, and what we see again is that once we remove uh, that question from the place where we are used to, is this, uh, in the sense of, uh, in the case of science, it is the, the laboratory, the answer is uncertain. In the laboratory, we know who has the authority. But outside that, we don't know anymore. Parents, associations, whoever. And, and, and uh, or again, when we see uh, the case of, 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 of choice, no? uh, I think that passing choice is not an option. <laughs> at, at least in an institution. If you are in a hospital, you are just supposed to be asked about what you want, what you need, or whatever. Mm? But outside the hospital, things are much harder. Things are not so easy. For example, we have the case of ACTAP and the um, AIDS uh, and, and uh, the movement to, uh, to um, against placebo methodology. What did ACTAP activists did? They take the pills, they taste it, and they say, oh, this is sweet, this is placebo. We don't, and they went to the doctor and say, we don't take it anymore. We refuse the treatment because this is not a treatment, and we need something active to cure us. So, and what did pharmacists uh, did? Put something to make it bitter. <laughs> they then went to the laboratory, and they asked it, we need to know if this is a, an active principle or if it is just a placebo. If it is a placebo, we refuse it. So again, if you want a choice, the patient must turn into an activist. <laughs> and, because uh, uh, patient, active, they are certainly uh, dichotomic uh, notions. And as, as we see in this example, once you become an activist, you are not a patient anymore. And then you produce yourself as a, as a political subject again. again. So, um, what happened with method? I think that Stingers has explained, uh, Isabel Stingers has explained very well what happens with method. Method is just that we put between us and those who are the, 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 um, the target of our actions, just to protect ourselves, to know what happens with them. If you just follow a method, it doesn't, you don't care what's going on because you're just following a method. But once you, you remove it, then you're in front of which are the causes of your action, and then things change, definitely. And I think this is uh, also something that happens outside the institutions. I don't know, I mean, it's just a few comments uh, generated by your very interesting <laughs> contributions. Thank you. Okay, I have just a quick comment. Uh, the research of Megan made me think, remind me uh, my most recent research about biosecurity 
Ion Analyzing, the biosecurity projects in the European community. And it's interesting because in these biosecurity projects happen one interesting thing. The European community define biological risk in different scales and levels. And then they have a problem. The problem is to coordinate these different scales and levels. And they have the problem of making or taking decisions. They have the problem of make up your mind. Uh, so this is a, an interesting point because introduce a new topic about institution that it has not been put forward this morning. And the topic is that institutions led to combine or to produce or to articulate different scales and different levels. And then the problem is how to articulate these different levels. In the case of biosecurity, it's interesting because the European Union has to create uh, centers of uh, surveillance in different countries, databases, uh, to choose specialists in order to, to analyze this uh, information and so on. But the problem is, <coughs> is there. And your research remind me this, this question or, or this topic about institutions. When we talk about institutions, geometry is the idea of an institution. But when we talk about institutions, the idea is topology. Topology is about relations. So this led that different scales can be defined and can uh, convive, can be articulated in the same plane. It's just uh, another comment about thinking uh, about institutions. This idea of to articulate different levels and scales. Uh, I insist, in the case of the European Union, they define biological risk in a continental level, in a country, in a city, and finally in an individual, in, in a person. And then they have a problem to articulate all this different information from different scales. Mm -hmm. mm. I mean, and that's certainly the issue with public health research, and that's yeah. where they really, they're, well, they're still complex interventions are still getting funding because they, there's still a real allure about them because they say that they can do this linking. Yeah. So they can link food production, physical activity, yeah. bike riding. Yeah. So there's a real charm to them, which is obviously very, very attractive to... Mm -hmm you know, the NHS or whatever. But they've been going for over 10 years now and they haven't really produced any decent findings. So the researchers are either saying, right, we're not going to focus at the level of small behaviour change and, you know what, if we get a behaviour change, great, but at least we're doing something. Yeah. <laughs> or they're totally ignoring um, the level of the individual and some of them are just moving back into good old-fashioned big public health and trying to affect at the level of population because they've had such a problem with scale and they just can't do it and that is because it's what you were saying it's this stengist thing they're being led by their protocol too much and it becomes the protocol you know mm. it doesn't the method because that's you know because, and I, st I think especially when you're dealing in environments where you're dealing with kind of behaviour change, people's personalities, doctors' personalities in relation to... There's a, there's a security blanket of following a protocol and a method. And that's kind of a negative response to institutional arrangements, I guess. Whereas maybe potentially a more positive one is sort of scaling back and trying to be a bit more modest about what these interventions can have an effect on. Mm -hmm.
Excellent. Well, I'd like to thank um, everybody who's participated in this last bit of the session um, with, a, with a round of applause. <laughs> what, what strikes me very um, forcefully about about this session is is um, the the product the pr productivity of the institutional concept. For me, I mean, I I I, I know that there are there are problems with it that we've that we've, we've touched upon, but what is quite um, striking is is the the patterns and the overlaps between what otherwise might appear to be very disparate fields of practice, all having uh, uh, um, clear shared um, aspects. So the concept is is clearly useful in, in in spotting those resonances and patterns across um, disparate terrains. And I think the point that um, that Meg and Francisco, Francisco raised at the end there about the integration of multiple levels is again in some respects expressed <laughs> in our sessions and in our discussion. Uh, I, I see this, if you like, on, on the level of knowledge practices. Transdisciplinarity is the institutional moment. Transdisciplinarity is the disciplinarity. What Institutions after institutions, and transdisciplinarity is all about the uh, articulation and management of different levels, different regions of reality. And Isabel Stengers, of course, once is, is one of the philosophers of science most ably advocating the importance of recognizing that the different regions uh, within a complex plurality. Uh, one needs to respect the, the, the particularities of those regions and relate them to the other regions rather than assuming, a, uh, as, you, as you put it, a sort of geometrical Newtonian starting point of equivalence. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I think in our discussions as well, that the whole, the whole issue of the, the very big historical questions that are at play in these debates uh, strike me as very important and very resonant. So, you know, we're not just talking about the, the, the claim or the, the provocation uh, that, that Foucault and Deleuze give us that we maybe are moving out of a 19th century disciplinary modality and into a modality of control and, and, and execution. We need to put that, of course, in a bigger context that, that Jeff uh, hinted at, and I think your comment hinted at as well, which is you know the movement out of the collapse of feudalism, if you like, that gave rise to the modern epoch itself. So the collapse of the idea of guilds and uh, estates, which were organized around <coughs> the concept of craft. Mm -hmm. And of course, the, the 19th century is not just the, the century of, of, of institutions, it's also the century of professions. And the professions are the moment at which we move from crafts towards precisely the articulation of a techne, a practice, with a discourse, a knowledge. So a profession is uh, a, a way of practicing that organizes itself along the lines of, if you like, a science, an episteme. So, so medicine, law, uh, teaching, uh, art, all of these forms emerge as professions in, in, the, in the 19th century. So, so this articulation of, of, a, of a discourse with a practice also, if you like, is cracked open as we, as we move into institutional modalities. We lose the clear authority differential that we got from uh, thinking we know what we're talking about as medics or thinking we know what we're talking about as teachers. I, mean, I, I, very, I, I liked your, your, your discussion of medicine as, you know, the, the, the problems of com complex interventions involving 
uh, what did you say, everybody all the time. I mean, this was very clear to me in work I've done in things like a active aging, for example. If you start to interrogate the big push towards active aging, um, who is the subject of active aging? Well, it's all of us from yeah. zero yeah. to 110. Yeah. And when should we, what, what should we be doing? What we, we should constantly, at every moment of our lives, be involved in the process of active aging. So ju just as we're always supposed to be involved in health practices, maximizing health practices, always and everywhere, that always and everywhere, of course, flips over very quickly into the never and nowhere, <laughs> if you like. Mm. Just, just as if you like, in terms of the, the liminality issue, we, we get a, as, in, as institutions crack open, instead of either or mentality, we get both and mentality. We, we have to be both this and that. But of course, both and becomes both and and neither nor. As if you can't quite have your cake and eat it. <laughs> so, 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 so these questions of these questions of authority that I think Miguel rightly point to. You know that we uh, clearly we, we the, the, the forms of authority supplied by the professions in their art articulation of discourses alongside practices no longer hold up for obvious reasons because the institutions have shown themselves to be in some respects problematic, un unable to, 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 to exercise their functions. So 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 we so we're dealing with, we're thrown into, as soon as we entertain this concept, we're thrown into a transdisciplinary space where all of a sudden history starts erupting all around us, globality starts. So, so we find ourselves in this incredibly interesting, fruitful, complex problem space, um, which we've got about 10 minutes to discuss. <laughs> I just wanted to make a really um, quick comment from the public's perspective, because I think I've agree with all the things you've said and from a public's perspective I think what this today has really um, brought into much clearer view is a kind of um, a mode of publicity if you like mm. um, and it's this it's this both and mode mm. of publicity and, and and the Elif Friends homepage kind of started to really help me well crystallise it maybe for an hour I don't know but which is which is on the one hand this <coughs> incredible this, these very very strong claims to informality and and kind of um, um, everydayness and ease and um, you know it's it's all changed. It's not longer an institution. It's kind of distributed. You can do it moving around. You can. It's friendly. It's got you know little cartoons of elephants, or it's got these big claims about participation will be easy. You can intervene in public life without you know moving from your desk or just coming to one place for an hour or whatever. But on the but on the flip side of that, you've got this kind of incredibly intense organisation and reorganisation, re reconfiguration of bureaucracies and, and this you know, incredible choreography but going on behind the scenes and this like, sophisticated technology and all these systems of mediation that are needed to support this informality and this switch to this other mode of, of, of doing things. So this, it's a kind of an optics that's kind of coming to view of, of this sort of, you know, what's, what's an aesthetics of what you see and what you don't see but they're both there at the same time, and so it's this either, it's both and, um, so it's neither nor, as you said, both and. I don't know how quite how to articulate it, but this confluence, which Janet set, said of these both these things at the mm. same time, seems to be incredibly intense and tense, <laughs> and coming together it, as a mode of governing. And I think this institutions concept does some of that, you know, mm. helps us with to see some of that, if you like. You know, it's not it's not an institution or. A, or everyday life, it's this kind of 
strange combination assemblage or combination of these of these practices borrowed from each and put together to to govern in a slightly different way and i think from a public's perspective that's um helpful thing to see so thank you for bringing it to us but any more um comments or to finish off you have about five or ten minutes left i've really enjoyed the day and publics is something that i've not really um considered i'm, I'm a postgraduate student um, with another hat on, I actually work in a hospital, which is probably the most institutionalised of institutions. And the thing that strikes me is that um, the whole of the day has been uh, concentrating very much on how we're moving away from institutions towards institutions. But I don't think it's a seamless move. I think institutions are fighting back. Um, I, I can only sort of think of my own experiences of working in hospital. And when I first started uh, many, many years ago, it was all first uh, surnames and titles and everything. And now if you go into a hospital, it's all first names. Um, and it's all happy, smiley, and it's all sort of informal, or a lot more informal, even though you've got the, the formality of the care that's being given and the, the processes that are are um, adopted. So I think, yeah, with host even in a, an institution, there are elements of the institutions yes. being well incorporated um, for what it's worth. <laughs> yeah. yeah, one thought I've had at various points, you know, today is that I think we can actually use the, the concept of institution in two ways. One is the individual organization, you know, the, the open university is, is an institution, but then, um, or a particular hospital. But then I think we can also use the broader sense of universities as institution, you know, a kind of a concept, a type, and similarly, you know, for an individual hospital and, you know, the hospital service, you know, as, as another institution. And I make the point because a project that I'm just um, completing now, which is um, an international project, it's really about, um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the title, it's Change in Networks, Higher Education and Knowledge Societies. And part of actually looking at sort of changes in, in networks, I mean, what we are certainly finding is that um, the individual university is not realistically the setting for academic work that is carried out but coming back to notions of sort of profession and institutions, you, you actually find that the collaborative, um, certainly collaborative research which is going on is between um, researchers from different universities. They may be from, you know, around, you know, different countries as, um, as well. So the institution, the individual institution, is not, if you like, the, the mode of production. But universities as institution is still, is still working. 
um, to a considerable degree. And in fact, it's quite interesting we find um, differences um, between our, we, we have about 20 odd cases from different European countries. And in fact, um, we've been able really to sort of to typologize them in terms of the extent to which the academic networking goes beyond the boundaries of institutions per se. So in other words, research collaboration with businesses, with health services, with whatever. So does it go beyond the boundaries of the university as a concept, if you like, or does it just go beyond the boundaries of the individual institution? So I, I just think that's a distinction that it might be worth bearing in mind with quite a bit of this. I think it's, it's the same we do with institutions, actually, yes. Yeah. We talk about establishments, particular establishments. Yeah. And, and normally it's, it's interesting because this is normally the, the, the use we do in psychology. Yeah. In psychology, when we talk about institutions, we, we refer to specific establishments. The, especially the psychiatric one, but many others. But sociologists use the, the term institution in the other way, exactly, yeah. as, as, as a set of rules, um, patterns of behavior, and so on. But I think that we can use both for the institutions as a particular establishment or as this pattern. Uh, Going to need to um, wrap up in a moment. Um, Paul, did, did you want to? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure we could c and continue this conversation, but um, we said that we we're going to um, finish at around ten quarter past. Um, so I think we will, <laughs> 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 if that's okay. Um, it's been a really interesting day. I think Paul and I both um, agreed about that, and you know, thanks for staying to the end. I think we've had a really valuable discussion at the end, so I'm glad you did stay to the end. Um, and, yeah, thanks so much to our two guests, especially from coming all the way from Spain. So, um, yeah, thank you so much. Pleasure.